042 X-Files Retrospective Podcast, Episode 25, the Season 1 Wrap-Up. So the X-Files has finished their first 24-episode season. Now, there were a fair number of growing pains here, but there's also a lot that we can see that is definitely building towards the future. Part of that are the writing teams of Morgan and Wong in particular, as well as Gordon and Gansa, although that team won't stay a team throughout the entire course of the series. We already saw one exception to that combination when Gansa was on paternity leave. We've seen sort of Chris Carter style in terms of the way he writes. We've seen a few strong directors, particularly David Nutter, who established not just the tone of the series, but effectively the direction of his career with his work here on The X-Files. So just a quick recap of the key episodes and what we saw from them. Of course, there's the pilot, where we see Section Chief Blevins, and he first puts Mulder and Scully together with the hopes that Scully will be able to shut down Mulder's work. It doesn't quite work out that way. We also get our first introduction to the cigarette smoking man in that episode, alien abductions, Mulder's slideshows to brief Scully and get her up to speed, as well as the government complicity in at least the cover-up of alien abductions and withholding the evidence, as we see with the cigarette smoking man putting the module from Ray Soam's nose into storage in the Pentagon. In episode two, we get those very distinctive opening credits in that opening credit sequence, as well as Deep Throat and his introduction. And we get our first hints that the government is not just covering up alien technology, but that it's actually using it and cannibalizing it for its own developments and its own research. Episode three was Squeeze. This is where we meet Morgan and Wong as writers, and we also meet what particular type of threat we're going to be seeing a lot of, and that's the mutated human. So this is our first true monster of the week. The way this ended, there was no guarantee we're ever going to see Tombs again. We only see him once more, and that's also in this season. The next few episodes were very much Monster of the Week-style episodes. Conduit, we see that there has been a history of alien abductions, but that's about it. Jersey Devil is straight-up monster out of local folklore. Shadows is the first ghost story. Ghost in the Machine is... One that establishes that, again, the government is looking for advanced technology, willing to go to great lengths to acquire it and cover it up. ICE established David Nutter as a director more than it established anything else in terms of the long-term goals of the series. Space has been largely ignored from that point on. Fallen Angel introduces to Max Fennig and a little bit about the way Deep Throat works. We also had that very strong opening sequence where it was a mixture of live action and flashback narration to keep things going and explain how all the pieces fit together, and also the radiation bursts that some of these aliens can use to defend themselves. Then in EVE, we get our first sign of the U.S. government super soldier program in terms of the project that first produced the EVEs. We had Fire. Beyond the Sea was an episode that did do a lot for the mythology nearly as much as it did for Scully and making her a fully realized character and really fleshing her out. We saw Genderbender, which introduced us to multiple factions of aliens on Earth. The characters that we meet there don't seem to jive with any of the other aliens we've seen. Lazarus, it's another mostly one-off. What it does do is show that the cigarette smoking man is involved in more than just alien abductions, as we see him through the window interrogating Barnett before he dies. We get Yannick Hart. Uh, EBE establishes not just the lone gunman, but it also establishes that Deep Throat will lie to Mulder to serve his own ends. Uh, He's not necessarily doing this strictly to help Mulder, but that he has his own goals and sets up a lot of the relationship that Scully and Deep Throat are going to have as well. Miracle Man primarily establishes that Christian theology has a basis in fact, at least in the world of the X-Files. Then we see shapes, darkness falls, in tombs. We first meet Skinner and learn that he reports directly to the cigarette smoking man. We get born again in Roland, and then we finally wrap up with the Erlenmeyer flask, which we discussed in the last podcast and which establishes massive amounts of the upcoming mythology as well as leading to the end of Deep Throat. 
So it was a fairly strong season that laid a lot of the groundwork. Now, it's strong in terms of the delivery and in terms of how it was doing. It was not particularly strong in terms of the ratings. There was no guarantee that it would have come back for a second season until very late in the first season. And in fact, later shows that had comparable ratings with comparable budgets would be canceled by Fox. One of the main reasons Fox kept the show on the air is because at the time, Fox was struggling as far as hour-long dramas were concerned. Beverly Hills 902 was wrapping up. The only two very strong hits that Fox Network had at the time were The Simpsons and Married with Children, which you know are both half-hour comedies and both going in very different directions. The Simpsons then was still new. They had no idea what a monster that would become, but Married with Children had been their sole established hit up until a couple of years prior to that. So they didn't renew X-Files so much out of the way X-Files was performing as they did simply out of the fact that they had nothing to replace it with and they didn't have practice developing it. So they gave another shot in a second year to see how that went. And, well, they ended up getting to year nine. So clearly that second year started to turn some heads, as we'll notice, especially as we start getting into our special episode podcasts in seasons three and four. Now, the first season of The X-Files also filled in a little bit of TV history that a lot of people don't realize. When The X-Files was first really hitting and striding and getting popular, DVDs were not really commonplace. Now, DVD technology has existed since 1997. It didn't really become popular in the home user market until early 1999, when the third generation of DVDs came out that allowed for multiple layers. Because of those multiple layers, you could actually watch a movie that was more than two hours long without taking the DVD out and flipping it over and watching the rest of it on the other side. What the dual layer technology does is it lets you actually put in two layers of data that are read by the DVD player just by changing the angle of the lenses and the light refracts differently and reads a second layer of data instead. And that's what really opened things up and started to get up to the three to three and a half, sometimes even four hour limits that we have depending on the quality of the compression. So prior to this, X-Files was one of the few shows that had had some success on home video sales in the VHS format. So they typically released two episodes per VHS tape, and they put three tapes in a box. So a box set would have six episodes, and they weren't even coming in complete season collections. They often skip episodes in between. So you'd have two box sets out for season one that covered about half the season, and that's about it. When DVD started to hit, people were looking at it, trying to figure out, well, what do we do with this new home video format? It was starting to pick up, as I said, in early 1999 when the dual layer came out. There were a few moderately successful titles. Disney did fairly well for the time with Little Mermaid, which was its first major DVD release. Columbia TriStar hit the 15th anniversary of the Ghostbusters with a couple of DVDs, which is why I bought my first DVD player in June 1999. Then the Matrix hit DVD that September, and the DVD market exploded. People were buying them now left, right, and center, especially those with the strong sci-fi and fantasy fandom. So it opened up a lot. The first TV series to hit DVD was the original Star Trek series, and those were being released two episodes per disc for the $20 to $25 range. So by the time you got all 79 episodes of Star Trek, you'd spend about $1,000 two episodes at a time. Uh, Fox Home Video and Fox Entertainment was the first entity to try and release a complete season in one package in the DVD format. And the title that they chose to do that was The X-Files. So the first season of The X-Files was the first complete season, at least of American TV, released on DVD for the home video market in one package. And that came out in early May of the year 2000. And from that point, it hit mostly six-month cycles between DVD releases. Some of that was fed by Fox's other experimentation with 24 as the first series to get a complete season DVD release while the series was still on the air, but before those episodes had hit syndication. 
prior to that, syndicated revenue was huge. And that was one of the goals of most networks is to hit that 100 episode mark so you could have daily syndication over the course of 20 weeks on most networks and do it there. So they wouldn't release season five on DVD until after they made syndication money off it, for example. And that's true for virtually all shows. They are even examples of networks pulling broadcast rights to seasons when they did release them on DVD just to help control that revenue stream. That's why the Space Network here in Canada had to pull the Babylon 5 reruns because Warner pulled the rights from them so that they would drive those people to buying Babylon 5 on DVD instead. But with 9-11, 24 got off to a weaker start in the ratings than they expected because of the nature of that show for the next year. They released the first season of 24 before season 2 came out and made a lot more money than they ever made on syndication. And that's when they realized the power in getting people a season before the next season comes out so that they can catch up, which is now the new standard release cycle for virtually all TV shows. These get it out just a few weeks before the next season begins or right around the same time that the next season begins so that people can catch up or follow along. And in doing that, they've taken a huge dent out of the syndication market for a lot of shows, and they're basically changing the face of TV. As I said, a lot of that was largely due to X-Files and 24, both of which came out of Fox. So they've made some questionable decisions in terms of their TV network broadcasting, but I do give Fox credit for the way they release things on DVD, including X-Files, 24, and looking at the response that they've had to Family Guy, Firefly, they've really been able to find new markets for their product. There's even rumors, which will almost certainly be confirmed or ruled out by the time this is aired, that the X-Files is being redone and revamped on Blu-ray as have been done with Star Trek series. At this point, it's just a rumor because this is being recorded on December 7th, 2012. A little paranoid about missing deadlines, so recording a bit in advance here. In any event, that's where we are at the end of season one. So join us here again in one week for the start of season two and Little Green Men. Intro and outro music is by Lastwell, created under the Creative Commons license. All other content, copyright 2014, Bureau 42. Please feel free to send any comments and feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com or leave us a review on iTunes.